for the week of January 21st, 2016. This is the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. This week, Hawaii's energy future from the startup's perspective. We'll talk with the leader of an accelerator that is grappling with the state's energy transition. Then, Jigger's company, Generate Capital, has committed $150 million to support difficult-to-finance clean technologies. We'll get the details on infrastructure as a service. And finally, should solar use its newfound lobbying strength to push for a price on carbon? I'm Stephen Lacey in Washington, D.C. Welcome. Also in Washington, D.C. is Catherine Hamilton of 38 North Solutions. Hello, Catherine. Hi. How is everybody? We're waiting here, eagerly anticipating Storm Jonas. Is that what it's called? I didn't catch yeah. the name yet. Okay. Yeah. I'm planning on staying in this apartment for three three more days. <laughs> Without moving. That's right. Jigger Shaw of Generate Capital joins us from New York City. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. I'm not as nervous of... Uh the snow that's coming in New York. I heard the guys in D.C. got trapped for nine hours yesterday on the roads. Yeah, it was a weird like little one-inch preview storm, so all the schools were closed today. So, Jigger, I know you're not afraid. Part of it is you guys have infrastructure there, but the other part is you don't have as many children as I do. <laughs> well, no, that's true, and part of it's I, I grew up in rural Illinois, so I'm definitely not afraid. This week's guest comes to us from Honolulu. Don Lippert is the co-founder and director of the Energy Accelerator, an organization devoted to making Hawaii's energy system 100% renewable over the coming decades. Don is also chair of the Hawaii Clean Energy Initiative and was the founder of the organization Women in Renewable Energy. Hey, Don, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you folks doing? Good. I presume you're not preparing for a snowstorm? <laughs> Haven't heard of one coming our way. <laughs> well, I would worry a lot more than I already do if I heard of one coming your way. So, so incubators and accelerators are important for every state for a variety of economic reasons, but the Energy Accelerator in Hawaii stands out to me because its mission is tied to this specific policy goal and a specific, specific set of challenges around achieving that goal, and that is to slash oil use in the state and get the grid eventually 100% renewable by the middle of the century. So how is your mission tied into that? And, and how does that impact the way you select and support companies? How might that be different from other accelerators? Sure. So, I mean, Hawaii is different in a number of ways. One is that most of our electricity comes from burning oil. So right now, about 80% of our electricity, uh, earlier this decade, about 90% of our electricity came from oil. So the petroleum dependency is real, both in electricity and transportation. And it also means that our costs are very high for electricity, so maybe four times the national average. And so all of that kind of creates a perfect storm for renewable energy and energy efficiency, um, where the economics make a lot of sense here right now. For us, the goal for Hawaii is to be 100% renewable by 2045. This follows on of another very aggressive goal that we had earlier to be 70% clean energy. So we're just getting more and more aggressive goals as we kind of move forward to try and get off oil. And that ties into creating a very robust market for innovation. Innovation here is not a nice to have. It's something we absolutely need to get off of oil. So what's most interesting to you? You've got a portfolio of over 30 companies, 32 companies across energy storage. You've got a bunch of energy efficiency, transportation, in finance to, to help support these projects. What's most interesting to you and what's perhaps most relevant to Hawaii? There's a number of things that we're really excited about right now. We're funding about 15 companies a year at this point. 
And we fund the companies, but we also fund deployments, so steel in the ground deployments of their technologies. And our goal with these deployments is to fund things that are really transformational for a company. So some of the things I'm really excited about are what we're doing in energy storage space. Um, one of our companies that we've been working with for a couple of years is STEM. I know you had John Carrington on here for your 100th episode, which was a lot of fun. You know, an example of a company that we've worked with, kind of give you an example through STEM, is that they deployed a number of systems in California, and then they were looking to really partner with a utility and connect their systems together and then turn over control of those systems to the utility to really realize their full vision of creating these grid services. So that's what we put together here and kind of wrote the book on, on how to do that and then help that help them then scale that solution to other places as well. So that's one of our energy storage companies. We have a number of other folks that are really active in kind of the microgrid energy storage space. Um, and then in addition to that, as you said, number of energy efficiency companies. And we also have about four companies in transportation, three companies in agriculture, and a couple companies that we're going to be announcing in the next couple of weeks on cybersecurity and water. So expanding really quickly into those areas as well. Very cool. I, I just, for a little background, it sounds like you guys got a grant from the U.S. Navy to really get started. Yes, yeah, so we have pretty, we're unusual in, as a startup program in that way. We have really deep ties to some of the incumbents in this space. So the U.S. Navy has funded us with over $30 million. Uh, we also have funding from the Department of Energy. And then an, a large number of players in the energy space from the private side as well. So that would include, you know, Hawaiian Electric, GE, a number of kind of public and private partners that are on the incumbent side that are really working with us to integrate innovation into their organizations. So, Don, do you work with other incubators? There are several of them all over the country, and I just wonder if you collaborate at all, if you serve as a model for them, what your relationship is with the other ones. Absolutely, and that's that's really critical for us. So we're a, a national accelerator program. We just happen to be based in Hawaii. So our mission is less focused around you know sort of economic development and, and Hawaii companies, although that is important, but it's really focused on bringing solutions from all over the country and increasingly all over the world to solve the problems that we're seeing in Hawaii and help those companies work together. So uh, we work a lot with other incubators and accelerators. They're actually one of our best sources of companies. So we have companies from you know, 1776. Uh, we have companies from ARPA-E as you know, government grant program, uh, companies from Greentown Labs, from NYC Acre, from many of these different, different folks uh, incubate companies and then send them to us for deployment funding. And we provide up to a million dollars per company to help them deploy and get their solution out there. So one of the companies that I talked to recently was a company called Pona Home, which has been doing um, micro energy efficiency retrofits uh, for housing units, like 300 to $500 uh, retrofits. I'm curious, one of the things that they said was that if they raised money from outside, that there was some sort of matching dollar program. Is that something you guys do? Yeah, we just started doing that, actually. And so for us, what we see is that the companies that we're working with need a number of different things as they grow. And so we've put together, I would say, three pieces of the pipe in sort of the capital pipeline or the capital stack. So we have a go-to-market program, which is for companies that have developed really cool technology but don't yet have a scalable business model. And we work with them for six months to develop that. Then we have a demonstration program for companies that have a scalable business model and want to scale up their technology and demonstrate it. We provide up to a million dollars to them to put steel in the ground and get that going, either in Hawaii or in the Asia Pacific. And then we also have follow-on fund, which is something that our companies had been asking for. So companies that 
raise money, we'll match that as on a pure equity basis. So we basically have a, a sister organization that is a different legal entity, but affiliated with our organization and our companies to follow on invest in companies. So tell us about how companies are reacting to the policy and regulatory changes there in Hawaii. Obviously, we've seen for the last year that regulators were going to change net metering policy. And around the continental U.S., we see changes to rate design, you know, maybe some residential demand charges, a lowering of net metering. We see these changes where people are going to need technological solutions to make uh, distributed energy more economical, uh, to approach customers in new ways. What are, how, how is this influencing the way businesses are designing their products or services in Hawaii, where these changes are happening pretty fast, and they're, it's a microcosm for the changes that are going to be coming underway across the rest of the U.S. soon? That is a, that's a great question. So the, what's happening in the regulatory space right now, as you say, is very dynamic and changing very quickly. So you know, as, as Jigger has talked about quite a bit and has really been a pioneer for, I mean, our most successful companies are doing financial innovation and business model innovation right alongside their technology innovation. And as the, the policy space changes really quickly, that's been extremely important. So one of our companies, for example, is a company called Go Electric, which does um, sort of started out working on microgrids for the military and has a you know, innovative business model wrapped around their innovative UPS technology. So now what they're doing is giving away their UPS systems for free and then paying for them with demand response services. So it's certainly a very dynamic space as companies are trying to figure that out. I think the other thing that's happening here is that there might finally be a business model for residential storage. So we're seeing a huge amount of activity in that space as companies race to figure out exactly what that would look like and try and roll that out here in Hawaii and then are able to scale that to you know, Japan, California, New York, other places that have, uh, you know, are right on the heels of this as well. I love Go Electric. Lisa is out in Indianapolis, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, in Indianapolis, exactly. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. Hey, just to get a little gossipy, um, you know, you guys have a mandate around 100% renewable energy by 2045, you know, and then Nextera sort of said publicly that they thought that that was not really feasible or cost-effective. You know, how does that sort of you know, translate for you guys? Do you guys actually get involved in figuring out how to get to 100% by 2045? Do you do technology roadmaps? Do you, you know, get participated in some of those types of exercises? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's been a pretty fascinating few years here. I've lived in Hawaii for about seven years, and I actually originally came here working on the policy scene. So we were working in 2007, 2008, kind of developing the policy framework to help Hawaii transition to a clean energy future. So that was kind of our initial renewable portfolio standard, energy efficiency portfolio standard, and many of the regulatory pieces that were put in place then. So it's been a very interesting evolution. We've worked really closely with NextEra. You know, Jim Robo and the, the crew at NextEra has said that they're interested in Hawaii because they think this is what the future of utilities and of energy will look like. So this is really a glimpse into the future. I think this is a definitely a doable goal. It's something that we've been very much involved in, mostly from my role as chair of the Hawaii Clean Energy Initiative and helping kind of bring public and private stakeholders together around that goal. I think the general feeling in Hawaii is that people can get there, but we don't know exactly what that roadmap will look like. 
So everybody should know that Dawn was one of the 2015 C3E award winners, which um, are given by a group of later career women to mid-career women who show outstanding leadership and extraordinary achievement. And Dawn won the Advocacy Award. She was one of only nine women globally who won last year. And so, Dawn, when I think about your advocacy role and what you're doing there, and you're talking about policy advocacy, but also you're really advocating for the success of the companies that are incubating. And I just wonder, you know, what else, where are the gaps? What else do you need to try to get your companies to be as successful as possible? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. It's interesting here working on advocacy from that perspective. I think Hawaii may be one of the few places where our energy policy board is actually has the same chair as our innovation organization. So I think that actually says something about Hawaii and how important we think innovation is in getting to our future. I think that there are a number of gaps that we've seen in the ecosystem. I kind of I mentioned that we've we're now funding three pieces of the pipe and kind of the capital stack for companies that are accelerating. But what we really see is that our most successful companies have knit together those different pieces of the pipe so that the financial infrastructure that they need to scale is there before they need it. And so we've seen a really successful example of that with STEM and some of our other companies that have been really creative in bringing together multiple kinds of financing to make sure they can scale. I think with what we've seen in Paris and in you know, some of the mission innovation talk around bringing a lot more capital to this problem, what I would really like to see is some platforms that can knit together additional additional pieces of the pipeline for capital for companies. And that's what we're seeing really accelerate commercialization. So that's that's certainly one of the, the gaps that we see. And then the other gap is exactly what you mentioned around kind of policy and innovation and, you know, how do we kind of fix that, that time lag uh, between policy and technology? Because even as quickly as policy is moving here, there is still, there is still a gap between what we can do technically and where technology needs to go and the price signals that we need to see and the kind of rate structures we need to see to help technology get to market and where policymakers are. So I think that we're closing that gap in Hawaii pretty successfully through dialogue and a lot of intense work, but I think we still have work to do. Let's stir things up a little bit here. We had a debate on the podcast sometime last year when Hawaii set the 100% renewable energy goal. Many lauded it as an ambitious one, but Jigger said he thought it was not ambitious enough, that 2045 is a long way out and kind of a cop-out. And first, I'll ask Jigger to clarify before I put too many words in his mouth. Uh, and then, Catherine, if you want to jump in with any opinions as well, we, we, we debated the merits of this policy. Um, and then, Don, when, when he's done, you can tell us where you stand on the ambition of that goal. No, I really stand by it. I mean, it seems to me like Hawaiians are really suffering under enormous energy bills. And when you think about the existing technology that we have today, maybe we can't get to 100% with the existing technology today, but we certainly can get to 80% with the existing technology today. And so, I mean, don't you think Hawaii should be more ambitious than 2045? <laughs> so I guess that's over to me. So I... I definitely hear what you're saying. I think from my perspective, the way that policy has worked in this state is that you know, we're setting goals and basically putting stakes in the ground saying this is where we're going. And then as we get closer to those goals and we see how to achieve them, we ratchet them up. I mean, from my perspective, I think that actually makes a lot of sense. In a lot of ways, the, the price of oil has thrown a wrench into what's happening right now around renewables in Hawaii. And I think that there will continue to be some, 
you know, challenges in the market as that, as that works itself out. I'm glad you're optimistic. <laughs> I'm glad you're on our side of getting there. So, um, yeah, let's do it. We can do it. All right. So over the next year, what are the most interesting stories that you expect to see coming out of Hawaii? What should we keep our eyes on? <laughs> well, a few things. One is certainly what's happening on the international front. So one of the things that we'll be doing in 2016 is uh, rolling out some additional partnerships in the Asia Pacific. There is a real momentum around using Hawaii as a meeting place and a place to demonstrate some of these next generation solutions that places like Japan, the Philippines, Australia, New Zealand, Korea can start really testing technologies and getting comfortable with it. So we're looking at a couple of different partnerships across the Asia Pacific to help our companies also scale toward Asia and access those markets. Um, the other thing we're absolutely looking for is ties back into C3E is more diversity in our founding teams. We would love to see, in particular, more women executives on our teams, and I hope we can make some really significant progress um, in 2016 around that as well, and use the C3E platform as well to reach out to some of these women entrepreneurs. Don Lippert is the co-founder and director of the Energy Accelerator based in Honolulu, Hawaii. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks so much for having me. Moving along now, let's talk about what Jigger has been up to aside from coming on this podcast and being a father. In December of 2014, if you'll remember, Generate Capital was launched by Scott Jacobs, Matan Friedman, and Jigger Shaw to help support resource efficiency projects, uh, anything from water pumps to batteries for small and mid-sized applications, basically a lot of the underserved stuff. The strategy is also called Infrastructure as a Service. And if that sounds familiar, that's because it follows the, the power purchase agreement model that Jigger helped pioneer at SunEdison. And Generate's been pretty quiet over the last year, uh, but the company just announced $150 million in closed deals. And who better to give us an update on what those deals are comprised of than Jigger? Uh, before we get into the specific projects, maybe you can just get a bit deeper on the business model to refresh people. Jigger, remind us what you're doing exactly and how you're doing it. Yeah, I mean, I think that the the... This conversation is really, you know, well situated right after talking to Don about the accelerator. Um, what you find is that there's just a tremendous amount of um, of technology and entrepreneurs who are basically on the verge of being able to deploy their technology, and they even today really think that the only way to sell it is by getting the customer to pay cash. You know, I can't even tell you how many HVAC technologies or LED lighting technologies or battery storage technologies or agriculture technologies, you know, come to us and say, well, we've been, you know, closing one out of every 20 conversations we've had. And so why do we, you know, why do we need your financing? And I'm like, well, because you could close three out of every 20 conversations that you've had, right? Because the same underlying truth around solar, which is that most people just don't want to prioritize their own cash to pay uh, for solar up front. I think what's mind-blowing to me is that it's taken this long for this to happen. I mean, you had been working on this in solar for a long time, but we've had this model now for long enough that you'd think that more people would have picked it up. Yeah, I mean, but even in solar, I would say that the number of people who really understand exactly why people do what it's a really small number. For you know, there's 208,000 people that work in solar, and the vast majority of them don't understand why a financing company accepts, let's say, you know, this solar contract, but not that solar contract, right? I mean, like think about CNI in solar, right? So if you think about the commercial industrial space, if you're a church 
that wants to do a PPA, there's really no place for you to go. So give us some examples of projects that you think are unique. Sounds like you're doing a lot with water pumps. Um, Yeah. So unfortunately, we can't give the names of all the companies we're working with because they don't want to be revealed. But um, so we're, we're, we're doing a lot in behind the meter storage, right? So we talked about like sort of Go Electric in the previous segment or STEM or Green Charge Networks or Jelly or Coda. There's a lot of companies that are doing behind the meter um, battery storage. And so we certainly have signed up some of those guys. Um, and then there's um, uh, PJM, you know, battery storage, which is the frequency regulation. So we've signed up some of them. Um, on the water pumping side, you know, the one, you know, company has announced themselves is Grunfos. So Grunfos is the largest water pump company in the world. Um, but they have like number two or number three market share in the U.S. Um, and largely it's because, you know, like many European companies, their stuff costs, you know, 25 to 50 percent more, but saves 65 percent on electricity versus, in their case, Ingersoll Rand. Um, so they need a financing solution. Otherwise, people go with the lowest cost pump. Hey, I have a question about a, the potential for municipalities to take advantage of this business model. I just wonder if if that would be useful to them to use infrastructure as a service. As the customer or as the financier? As the customer. Well, and I mean, I guess potentially as a financier too, since they have bonds that they generally use to do projects. I just think about how municipalities really need to move forward with these and wondered um, if they could use that model or even help finance it. They can. I mean, the sales pitch for municipalities goes like this, right? Like in DC, for instance, they have, I think it's something like $300 million of deferred maintenance just on like boilers and HVAC units in their buildings. Um, And so that means that there are buildings in DC that um, where the heating and air conditioning don't work very well because it's just old. But, um, you know, the CFO of D.C. is saying if we issue bonds of an additional $300 million to be able to repair all that stuff, then S&P and Moody's is going to downgrade us from AAA to AA, right? So we don't want to use our money to do this. Um, and so, yeah, they can sign, you know, PPA contracts. And, and largely they do already, right? I mean, municipalities do ESCO contracts, Um which is sort of a PPA contract. And, you know, the mush market, which is municipal, municipalities, universities, schools, and hospitals do that. But what I would say is that there's a couple of issues there. One is is that the companies that can do that are generally large companies, right? Amoresco, Johnson Controls, et cetera. So if you're an entrepreneur that has its own technology, it's really hard to sell a municipality because you have to go through one of those agencies. And so what we do is enable those companies to have a financing partner directly so they can go to the municipality directly um, without having to go via one of these other players that are marking up their stuff by 20%. Um, the, other, the other thing I would say is that we're, I would say, more focused on enterprise customers and CNI customers because we think that that's the market that's completely unserved. If you're not Walmart or Target with investment grade credit ratings, there's just not a lot of people that are willing to finance you. And so you're really not going to focus on solar because that's already well represented, basically agricultural waste, LEDs, batteries, water pumps, things like that, right? Yeah. I mean, in general, that's true. Although I have to say that in solar, we're getting a ton of deal flow in the CNI space. I mean, it's amazing to me how many people have you know, like a privately owned warehouse that's been profitable for a long time and nobody will fund it. Um, so we're seeing a lot of deals like that. We're also seeing a lot of deals, for instance, in Puerto Rico, where people have sort of stopped financing deals in Puerto Rico when, you know, we think the people who live there are still creditworthy, even if the utility is not doing too well. So 
can this scale like solar jigger? Is this going to be sort of a, a boutique thing going forward? Or do you guys see yourselves as like the Goldman Sachs of financing resource efficiency? Like wh- where, where do you see it shaking out? So I do think it can scale, but the only way it can scale is if we're forcing people into standardized processes, right? So there's, you know, a partnership flip structure, a sale leaseback structure, um, a loan structure, right? And you basically go to these folks and say, these entrepreneurs and say, here are the legal documents. You have to sign these legal documents. Sure, sure like, you know, hire your own lawyer so you understand what you're signing up to. But we're not going to do a custom negotiation with you where each side has to pay $500,000 in legal fees to do this deal because we're only funding $5 million worth of stuff total, right? And so it's that level of standardization that we have to drive through the process. And, and that's hard. The other thing I would say is that, that the amount of mentorship that we have to provide to the industry is massive. Um, it's amazing to me how many entrepreneurs, even today, don't even know that their technology is eligible for no money down financing. Yeah, you just described the two biggest hurdles right there. I mean, the transaction costs are so high for these small and mid-sized projects. And, you know, there's not a lot of education out there on how to get these projects completed. So so are you going to take the lead on that? Or do you work with standards bodies? Like, what's the, what's the way that you get around that? I mean, clearly, you have a role as a firm yourself and working with these entrepreneurs and companies. But... Um, who else is interesting out there that might assist you in making sure that those standards go forward? Well, so I've, I've definitely, you know, worked with um, the guys at SAPSI at NREL um, who did a lot of the standardization of the contracts in the residential and the commercial solar space. And we're certainly using all the best practices that came from those contracts. And so we're not reinventing the wheel. Um, but there aren't a lot of folks for us to coordinate with. We coordinate with all of the um, trade associations like ESA for the Energy Storage Association or, you know, others for biomass and anaerobic digesters and things like that. But what you find is, is that when I talk to the executive directors of those organizations, they're not even sure how to prioritize this stuff um, within their own mandate. And so I think we're early days. I mean, the good thing is, is that I do think that with the extension of the tax credit, um, which wasn't just for solar, but was also for other technologies, um, there's certainly a big need for um, and a runway now for folks to really get themselves educated on how to use financing to accelerate their business. Well, you've been very tight-lipped about this for the last year, and $150 million is is great. And do you guys expect to have pretty high volumes this year? Yeah. I mean, the 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 amount of demand right now is through the roof. I mean, I mean, just electric vehicles, for instance. I mean, a lot of electric bus manufacturers are only thinking about financing for the first time today, right? I mean, there's just, there's so many different sectors that we could go after that, you know, we certainly will be, um, there's no shortage of opportunities. I mean, we just have to raise more money. Let's move on to the last topic. Every January, I feel like we have the same political conversation over climate change. People are feeling pretty energized. They're ready for a new year. And so inevitably, someone brings up the prospect of passing a carbon tax through Congress. It's so simple. It's so economically efficient. And in theory, it, could get, it should get conservative support. But reality is crushing. And as the years pass, it's not getting any easier to pass a carbon price through Congress. But in a new op-ed on GTM, Bruce Hagan of the Citizens Climate Lobby argued that the solar industry should be using its newfound lobbying power 
uh, on the national level to push for a carbon price. Is he right? Is 2016 somehow different given the strength of the renewables lobby? Catherine, does he have a case here or are supporters of a carbon tax about to get their hopes crushed again? Um, <laughs> so I, I ask this question to somebody in the Senate who is in leadership and knows a lot about energy. And I said, so you think now's the time for a carbon tax? And the only sound on the other end of the phone was laughter. Um, there's sort of two things you have to have. You have to have a workable policy. So you have to have something that you know is actually going to work. And I know there's been a lot of, there are a lot of different studies and different models that have been done and different policies that have been experimented with, but it's a real issue. I mean, the details really, really are an issue. So the workable policy is one piece of it. And then the other piece is a clear political pathway. You need to know, um, how you're going to get this done. There is no pathway right now with, um, the Republicans in charge of the house and the Senate and an election year. And we just don't know what's going to happen. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't still talk about it. I think you can still certainly talk about it and educate people. But for something like this, that is really going to be an economy wide change, you can't even just have the politicians okay with it. You have to have everybody okay with it. You have to have a lot more grassroots support. So the I think that the the article in Green Tech Media was written by the, you know, citizens um, climate lobby. Right. And, and these guys, um, actually just won the MacArthur genius grant award, um, which is a pretty big deal. I mean, you know, that, that's not an easy award to get. I mean, I do think that they have done a really good job at the grassroots level to try to figure out exactly what all the details look like, which is great. But I agree with Catherine that the, the actual politics of this is going to come through, in my opinion, you know, it's going to come through ExxonMobil. Um, I mean, ExxonMobil has been supportive of a carbon tax in the past. And the reason they're supportive of it is because they want certainty, right? The oil industry believes that they're going to sell gasoline and diesel no matter what happens because people are just running their cars off of it. But that they actually want to make sure that there isn't this cloud over their head around future taxes. They'd like to just make the cloud go away and get to certainty. So I think politically they're working with the wrong group because the solar and wind guys they're they're not looking at a carbon tax to you know to radically change the trajectory of solar and wind deployment that's right because they've got the tax credits that provide them certainty and they have the clean power plan and this is another issue is that we have regulation now that is trying to move us to to some climate solutions and what you would not want to have happen is a carbon tax to immediately supplant the what the clean power plan is doing you'd want to make sure that somehow you carved out some way to test drive it without disrupting regulation i don't know how you do it that's that's part of the issue i'm terrified that we would bring down somehow what epa has done um in an effort to experiment with something that may or may not work and you don't know what the exact price signal is like jigger i would worry about the the fluctuating prices of oil and gas and what that would do to this interestingly i think the case that you just made there catherine is probably why some conservative groups do support a a carbon tax, like the R Street Institute and the Cato Institute, because they hate these top-down EPA regulations, and they realize that a carbon tax would be much more economically efficient in theory. So that's one of the reasons why you've seen a lot of 
um, anti-government, libertarian groups here in Washington been supportive of the carbon tax? Sure, which makes which just makes the point that Jigger made, which is, yes, ExxonMobil would be okay with it, but doubtful that the renewables guys would. Yeah, so, but just to, just to play the other side of this, I'm actually not afraid of a carbon tax. I mean, I think that if there was a deal next week where you could actually get a carbon tax passed and then you reduced social security taxes or something like that to like, you know, make this thing tax neutral or you eliminate corporate tax, you know, or reduce corporate taxes to 15% to make this revenue neutral. I wouldn't be opposed to it. I mean, I do believe that we desperately need a carbon tax in this country. I I mean, and the reason for that is I think even if it was a minuscule number, let's say like $2 a ton, it would automatically force every accountant and every CFO of the entire country to add a line to their Microsoft Excel spreadsheet for a carbon tax. And, you know, every accountant and every CFO that has a line for something in their spreadsheet manages that number. Yeah. Um, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't be talking about it and shouldn't be thinking about it over the longer term, because I agree that's going to send the true price signal. But I do worry about who the winners and who the losers are in this. So we really have to think about who's being impacted by climate change that stands to benefit the most and what who has to pay the price of this. And I realize it says revenue neutral. But if you think about who uses the most gas? This is rural communities. I mean, you need to make sure that there is there aren't there isn't a section or a subsection of our population that is adversely um, unwittingly impacted by something like this. So there, I, I think we just have to think about it a little bit more and think about the details of how it would kind of spin out. The last part of this is, of course, whether the renewables industry with more lobbying power is able to push this in a meaningful way? And I think the answer is probably no, particularly in the solar industry. I mean, SIA had to take a $700,000 line of credit to pay for its lobbyists to get the ITC passed, and now they have to pay that back. So, um, And of course, they've got all these state-level battles where they're going to be focusing their attention. So um, it's a great argument. I think it's really nice to sort of set up what, what could be done in theory. But the reality is the renewables industry particularly solar, which is one of the stronger ones, along with wind, is not going to be pushing for this. Yeah, but I mean, just to make sure that we're clear about at least my point of view on this, is I think the wind and solar industry are against a carbon tax, because I think that they believe that they already have their needs met, and they don't want to make things more complicated. Yes. The, the, The group that would actually push it would be the nuclear industry, who desperately needs a carbon tax to stick around. Um, and so, you know, I think that that's, where like like even when you think about the Northeast, you think about Reggie, right, in the re- the regional greenhouse gas initiative. Um, you know the nuclear industry should be pushing Reggie to drive the price of carbon you know prices up there to fifteen twenty bucks a a ton, and then we could save the nuclear plants up there. I think you're right. I think the biggest proponents would be Exxon Mobil and Exelon. Uh, I think that that's a, the the right way to read it. So as usual, the nuclear industry likes to like, you know, complain about how we don't love them, but they don't want to lift a finger to do crap. (laughs) Well, and there are a lot of people thinking about this. It's not just the citizens climate lobby. I mean, Al Gore has his climate reality project. There's the carbon pricing leadership group that is more global. Um, Bob Inglis that we had on the show has been pushing this for a long time. Jay Faison, the Republican um, from North Carolina, has really been pushing this as well. So I feel like 
there are a lot of people talking about it. I just think right now is not when it's going to happen. And an opposition researcher unearthed a video of Marco Rubio in 2008 calling for a carbon tax. So there's that. <laughs> Let's wrap up the show now. Tell our listeners something they don't know. Catherine, you've got the first word. What do you have? Yeah, I love it that I'm in 1776 because people like to come and visit me. So I had a really great visitor. And Stephen, you may know him as well. His name is Daniel Hill. He is co-founder and president of the Green Impact Campaign. And he has a really interesting program, which is that he gives college students, or really anybody, but he's really been focused on college students, a toolkit that allows them to do energy audits of small businesses. And what this does is it gets people to understand kids that want to or young people who really want to learn more about energy, some hands-on experience. It allows them a simple way to do it. He has 100 students have completed assessments for 400 businesses and have identified over 5 million kilowatt hours of annual savings. 70% of the businesses have implemented at least one recommendation after a survey. And 90% of the students say that their involvement with this program has helped advance their career or their degree in some way. And I just think this is great because I think you have just got to get out in the field and do something with your hands and see how energy really works to truly appreciate, you know, before you get into policy to really, really appreciate how energy is used. I spoke to Daniel yesterday by phone and he told me all about what he was up to. And it's so relevant to our discussion about, um, improving your work experience while you're looking for a job. And I loved this because it gets students and young professionals out in the field working on these issues and um, gives them a little bit of handholding, but also the experience. And they, I know they have a credentialing program and so forth. So I, I really liked um, what they were doing. Jigger, tell us something we don't know. So um, the Center for American has a great blog. And uh, on January 14th, Robert Ferris published an article uh, called Texas Sets New All-Time Wind Energy Record. So on December 20th, a low-pressure weather system crossed through the Texas Panhandle and created sustained wind speeds of 20 to 30 miles an hour. So for 17 hours straight, uh, wind energy provided roughly 45% of the state's total electricity needs. Um, And, you know, ERCOT has been really at the forefront of figuring out how to integrate wind. And for a lot of people, they said, look, if this happens, it's going to break the back of the the utility grid and we're going to have brownouts and all these issues. And, um, you know, our good friend uh, Robert Bryce, the Manhattan Institute, says this all the time. And in fact, the Texas grid did fine. They uh, didn't have any brownouts. They didn't have any instability. They were able to balance the intermittent wind, um, you know, within the mix. And so, you know, it gives me a lot more comfort that, you know, what we've been saying is actually true, that the system gets tested and system comes through it just fine. Yeah. And it's interesting when you see a lot of the government labs model this stuff, you know, their projections about how much the grid could handle have changed dramatically over the last 10 or 15 years. They've slowly sort of elevated the threshold for how many intermittent renewables we can put onto the grid and handle. Uh, I wanted to just mention a story that you sent around, Jigger, which was from the Reno Gazette Journal, comparing job creation numbers with job claims at the Tesla Gigafactory. Of course, last year, Tesla said it was going to site the Gigafactory in Nevada, or maybe it was even 2013 when they said they were going to site it in Nevada, and they started building it last year, uh, late 2014 into 2015. And they said that they were going to have 700 permanent jobs by the end of last year, 2015. 
And the Reno Gazette Journal dug into it, and they found that they Tesla had only employed 82 people at the Gigafactory, even though the factory is well ahead of schedule. I do know that there are some safeguards in here. For example, if the project doesn't um, create $3.5 billion worth of economic activity, as promised, they will get many of their tax breaks stripped away. So it's not like Tesla can come in here and just fleece uh, Nevada taxpayers. And I think it's still too early to say whether they are or aren't. But uh, something to keep our eyes on. And uh, also something that, that I'm watching because... You know, this company, Faraday Future, which unveiled that race car, is making big claims about the economic activity that they want to create in Nevada as well. Yeah, well, Nevada is, you know, on track to becoming the big three for, you know, electric vehicles, right? So uh, so it's, it's worth mentioning that uh, we want to watch to see whether they reach their target. Absolutely. That is all for our show this week. Thanks for being here. We will be off next week. I'm going to be in Mexico City for our solar summit there it's our first international conference in the meantime you can revisit all our episodes at greentechmedia.com slash podcast i actually heard from a few people recently that they went back and listened to all 119 episodes which i think is pretty impressive binge listening we are of course on itunes soundcloud stitcher radio overcast and any other player of your choice Don't forget to check out our sister podcast, The Interchange, available to GTM Squared subscribers. Catherine, have a good weekend and a great next week, and I'll catch you in two weeks. Thanks. You too. Jigger, you do the same. Talk to you soon. Yeah, avoid the 30 inches of snow. There's no avoiding it. It's embracing it. With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey, and this is The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you in a couple of weeks.